sponsored by Amazon. Good morning, Playbookers. I'm Raghu Manavalan. GOP primary news. Plus, it's been one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Here are the big things we're watching on Friday, February 24th. From the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the RNC announced that the first GOP presidential primary debate of the cycle will take place in Milwaukee in August. That'll be alongside the party's summer meeting. More details aren't yet available, but the debate will precede next year's Republican National Convention in the city. Per Maggie Haberman and Maggie Astor from the New York Times, some of the significant outstanding questions include whether the RNC will force debate participants to sign a loyalty pledge vowing to back the ultimate GOP nominee, and whether it will impose a floor on the number of individual donors a candidate needs to make the stage. And Politico's Natalie Allison reports from Des Moines this morning, after three days on the ground, that the early days of the GOP campaign in Iowa indicate a broadly unsettled caucus electorate and a long path ahead for the would-be contenders. Nikki Haley and Senator Tim Scott both found warm receptions and picky voters just starting to test the field. Natalie finds lots of voters who are inclined to support Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, cautious about former President Donald Trump and open to hearing from the rest of the field. And some of them are worried about Iowa losing a bit of its first-in-the-nation shine. One year ago today, Russian President Vladimir Putin launched an invasion of Ukraine that he thought would quickly topple the government in Kyiv, expose Western powers as feckless and hopelessly divided, and usher in a new muscular era of Russian world power. One year later, he was wrong on all counts, but the toll of that decision has been immense. Politico's national security reporter and co-author of our NatSec Daily Newsletter is here to mark the occasion, fresh off a flight back from the Munich Security Conference. Alex, how's it going? Thanks for fighting the jet lag. Sure. And uh, I just came back from Poland as well, so it's been a full European week for me. Um, I guess let's start here. One year later, uh, how has the attitude toward the war changed in D.C.? I mean, it seems the same, generally speaking, right? I mean, the, the Biden administration is going to continue to provide uh, weapons and, and economic assistance to Ukraine. I mean, I, I was at the speech in Warsaw where Biden basically said, you know, we're going to do this as long as it takes. This is really about a fight for democracy, uh, for the future of the rules-based international order. Um, for him, you know, it's about the stakes are, ex are eternal, in his words. Uh, so this is going to be quite, uh, uh, there's a lot of staying power here, and Biden wants to continue to do it. What is changing, though, um, is that there is, for the moment, uh, you know, the majority of Americans support U.S. action uh, to, to, to back Ukraine, but it's slipping, and it's mostly slipping mm -hmm. among Republicans based on polling. So what you're seeing right now is that it's mostly Republicans at this point that are more skeptical of the campaign to continue uh, assisting Ukraine. And of course, that could be that trend could be turbocharged as the 2024 you know, primaries can really get going. But for now, mostly uh, status quo in terms of D.C.'s thinking about the war. 
Uh, talk to me about your trip uh, to Munich and also to Poland with President Biden. Yeah, so so Munich did not include Biden, but Munich did include Vice President Kamala Harris and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And and they are both, well, Harris's speech was there to make the case that uh, Russia had committed crimes against humanity in Ukraine. The U.S. had made that determination. She was the one to to tell the world about it. And then Blinken and other U.S. officials were really uh, around to, you know, talk to their transatlantic allies, to their partners, to get a sense of what, if they had any concerns, what things could be done better, what, you know, where they could coordinate. There was also um, the largest set of American lawmakers ever to the Munich Security Conference. And by the way, if you're not, if you don't know what the Munich Security Conference is, it, it is arguably the most important defense conference of the world, but it is hmm. uh, undoubtedly uh, like the, the centerpiece of sort of the, you know, a yearly transatlantic uh, event. Um, so it's it's always full of, of dignitaries. And so this included four separate CODELs that went to Munich and they had, you know, a whole bunch of meetings with their counterparts uh, and others as well. So th- Munich was kind of this moment of like, it's it's been a year. Can we all get together? Can we get on the same page still? Um, and let's show that we as a transatlantic alliance are behind this. And then in Warsaw, I mean, I was there, you know, at the rally that, uh, at the event that Biden spoke at. And, it, you know, to me, it felt kind of like a campaign rally for NATO. Like, mm. it, it had that sort of presidential campaign style feel. Big lights, Beyonce, Springsteen, uh, Twisted Sister blaring on the loudspeakers, people waving American, Polish, Ukrainian flags, you know, thousands of people around, blue and yellow lights for the flags of Ukraine, red and, and white lights for the flags of, uh, of Poland. Um, and Biden going up there and effectively making the case of like, hey, the West should not get tired of winning. Like, we have done well this year. Let's keep going. Uh, you know, these stakes are eternal. This is a really important um, generational fight for democracy. So, um, whereas I should note, you know, last year when he gave a speech roughly in that same spot in Warsaw, um, same complex, but not the exact spot, um, there was a funereal feeling, really, right? Because mm-hmm. it was it was just after the invasion had started and Biden and the administration and, and, and its European allies were trying to stop the war and it had started. So he was there to basically say, look, um, it's it's awful what's happened here, but like we're going to help and Ukraine's going to hold strong. And then, and then a year later, it was basically a celebration of like, look what a great year we've had compared to what we all thought was going to happen. Uh, I guess in the next, you know, couple days, weeks, months, what are you looking for? You know, what, what questions do you still have here? I mean, I, I think it's important to see, you know, what that commitment looks like, you know, in Munich, um, one of the things that all the European leaders said, whether it was French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, or European Union uh, Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen, you know, they all made the case that there is a gap in the production lines of weaponry uh, that they, because they've given a lot to Ukraine, and Ukraine is expending more munitions than they are taking in. And so mm-hmm. there's a question about, well, how can the West help be this arsenal of democracy and produce enough to give to Ukraine in time? And then part two is, you know, will Ukraine really get the two main big ticket items it really wants? Um, one, which is fighter jets. Um, and in terms of the U.S., they would want to provide, they would want the F-16s. But Biden so far has been resistant to that. Uh, so, and then the other one would be these attackums, these, these long-range missiles um, that also the Biden administration has been reluctant to provide somewhat out of fear that Ukraine would use them to attack deep inside Russia. Now, you talk to Ukrainians mm-hmm. and, and, and their you know, allies here, and they'll say, look, Ukraine's not going to risk losing American support and Western support by doing something like that. 
Um, but the the fine line the the U.S. led West is running here or walking here, I should say, um, is that they're trying to provide Ukraine with whatever it wants and whatever it needs and whatever it can absorb adequately while not provoking Russia any further and, you know, Biden's parlance not start World War III. Politico's Alex Ward, national security reporter. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Here's what's up in Washington today, starting with the White House. At 9 a.m. Eastern, President Joe Biden will meet virtually with Vladimir Zelensky and the G7 leaders. At 525, Biden will leave the White House for Newcastle, Delaware, arriving at 620. Vice President Kamala Harris will hold a meeting about access to reproductive health care at 11 a.m. The House and the Senate are out today. All right, for more news on what's breaking in D.C. right now, subscribe to the Playbook newsletter. That's at politico.com slash playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Playbook's editor is Mike DeBonis. Zach Staten is Playbook's deputy editor. The executive producer and head of audio here at Politico is Jenny Ament. I'm Rogu Manovalan. Have a good weekend. We'll see you first thing Monday morning. All employees should have the opportunity and tools to grow their careers, regardless of where they start. That's why Amazon offers a range of free training programs designed to help move into higher paying roles within Amazon. Learn more at aboutamazon.com.